Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host today, Shante Charles. We are reading from Esau Macaulay's work, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And we are on the chapter, What Shall We Do With This Rage? Now, I will admit to you that I am not feeling my best self today. I'm actually not feeling too good. Um, so I am going to do a short show. But we are going to try to read a portion of his writing today that is continuing with this idea of what shall we do with rage. And then we will break for some conversation and then we will end about 1130 today. A larger vision toward a solution to Israel's rage. And we're not talking about, the, he's talking about biblical Israel, not the state of Israel. So just want to make that clear of the difference. All right. So we're just reading the section called Toward a Solution to Israel's Rage. If you're reading along with me. We are starting at page 127, about the halfway mark, and we are going to end at page 133. Here we go. If we end our discussion of Israel's rage and black rage with simply a call for God to act, we are not being true. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are not being true to the fullness of the biblical witness. Sometimes we need to lament injustice and call for God to right wrongs. This is good and fair, but God's word to us is more than vengeance is mine. The miracle of Israel's scriptures is not that there are calls to repay our enemies to the full. That is the stuff of human existence. The miracle of Israel's witness is that the Old Testament could imagine something beyond blood vengeance. I have in mind biblical prophets whose writings address those in exile. These were the descendants of those who had experienced the traumatic removal from their homes and the destruction of much of what they loved. These prophets called on them to hope for more than a destruction of their foes and the salvation of Israel. Shockingly, they looked to the salvation of their former enemies. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49 verse 6. These passages have become so commonplace that the deep challenge they propose to Israel might be lost to us if they are not read with Psalm 137 ringing in our ears. Texts such as Psalm 137 speak to the anger that we rightly feel because of the wrongs that have been done to us. Yet these prophetic texts call us to the costly and painful work of imagining a world beyond our grievances. This does not rule out justice. It speaks to what happens after justice is served. And what happens afterward will matter if there is more to the African-American future than us replacing our oppressors and doing the same thing to them that they did to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Passages such as Isaiah 2, 2 through 5, envision a deep forgiveness not easily imaginable within the narrative world of Isaiah because he also looks forward to the destruction of Babylon. There is a tension within Isaiah. God must be just and he must judge sin, but there must also be more. The most hopeful places within Isaiah's narrative occur during its descriptions of the coming son of David. When Isaiah turns to his description of the king, it all comes together. Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 11 verses 1 through 10. We find the wisdom of God, the establishment of justice, and even the end of hostility between animals and humanity. War and death meet a foe more powerful, the king. Most importantly, the nations of the world began to view this king as a rallying point. What brings the warring parties of the world together is not the emergence of a new philosophy of government. It is not even free market capitalism, communism, socialism, or democracy. It is a person, the root of Jesse. Isaiah then calls for black people in the midst of their pain to begin to envision a world not defined by our anger. The Bible calls on us to develop a theological imagination within which we can see the world as a community and not a collection of hostilities. It does so by giving us the vision of a person who can heal our wounds and dismantle our hostilities. So we find a picture of the root of Jesse, also known as Jesus the Christ, being able to come and pull the world together. Jesus the Christ doing it. The cross breaks the wheel. It is possible to read the Old Testament and privileged passages such as Psalm 137 over Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 10. It is possible to skip over the middle portion of the New Testament and turn immediately to the apocalypse where the enemies of God's people experience fiery judgment. The picture of God judging wickedness is not an idea reserved for the Old Testament. The meek and mild Jesus of popular imagination is the creation of comfortable middle class. The oppressed know Jesus as the rider upon the white horse whose robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies. Revelations 19, 11 through 14. But if there's a miracle that's often criticized of black Christianity, it is that we have been profoundly influenced by the themes of forgiveness and the multi-ethnic community that fill the pages of the New Testament. We have found our way there by means of the cross. 
Let me be clear. The cross of Jesus Christ is not an intellectual apologetic that allows black Christians to say that we now understand the whip and chain in the wider scope of God's purposes. We do not believe that our enslavement was intended for the salvation of America. We do not hold to some broken or distorted application of Joseph's story. No, what happened to the enslaved and their descendants in this country was and remains an unmitigated evil. But how does God respond to our cries in light of that evil? He does not respond in a series of syllogisms rooted either in the freedom of the will or the majesty of his sovereignty. In other words, God does not say to us that because there is free will, some people will abuse that free will and do evil things like slavery. That might be one intellectual defense of evil in the Christian tradition, but historically, that has not been the means by which black Christians processed our oppression. Neither has God often responded to us in the way that he responded to Job, by just revealing his sovereign glory and silencing our questions. God in his mercy has allowed us to continue to voice our complaints. On this side of the passion and resurrection, black anger and pain is answered personally by the truly human one. We have found solace in the fact that God responds to black suffering with a profound act of identifying with it. I speak of Jesus, of an identification with the human condition that compels us, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of an enslaved in the likeness of humanity, and being found in the form of a human, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. Philippians 2, 6-8 what is God's first answer to black suffering and the wider human suffering and the rage that comes alongside it? It is to enter that suffering alongside us as a friend, as a redeemer. To, the answer to black rage is the calming words of the word made flesh. The incarnation that comes all the way down, even unto death, has been enough for us to say, yes, God, we trust you. We see you in our suffering. We have decided to trust God because he knows what it means to be at the mercy of a corrupt state that knows little of human rights or demonstrates it. Rome and the antebellum South may not be twins, but they are definitely close relatives, maybe even siblings of the same father. On the cross, we meet a God who experienced injustice in the flesh like our ancestors. Seen from one angle, the cross shows that God in Christ knows and understands the plight of the innocent sufferers of the world. But what reaches out and grabs the heart of the black Christian is not simply that Christ was innocent of the charges levied against him. If that were the full message of the cross, Jesus would merely just be another in a long line of martyred. Jesus stands out as the truly innocent sufferer who had done nothing wrong. We are not slave owners. Nonetheless, we have in ways, large and small, participated in the harm of others. We've also damaged ourselves and rebelled against our creator. The results have come back from the analysis of the human condition and the data is clear. We are all sinners. Jesus is not. The Christian tradition says that the innocent one suffered for us individually and corporately to bring us to God. 
The profound act of mercy gives us the theological resources to forgive. We forgive because we have been forgiven. It is only by looking at our enemies through the lens of the cross that we can begin to imagine the forgiveness necessary for community. What do black Christians do with the rage that we rightly feel? We send it to the cross of Christ. Justo Gonzalez in his important work, Manana, makes a compelling case that the United States must come to grips with what it did to Mexico. In making this claim, he does not render Mexico completely innocent. Instead, he quotes the proverb, Ladron que roba a ladron hacien años de perdón. A thief who robs a thief has a hundred years pardon. Gonzalez was not making a moral equivalence between all acts of evil, nor was he claiming that it is improper to attempt to right wrongs. He was saying that if you dig deep enough into any people's corporate or personal past, you will find something wrong. In Christian theology, this plays out in the words of Paul, where he says, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 verse 23. It is only by remembering that God's forgiveness costs him something that I find the divinely given power to pay the cost of forgiveness instead of revenge. The sword gives birth to the sword, but the cross breaks the wheel or the cycle. The claim that the cross breaks the wheel and that costly forgiveness is possible is not unique to the African-American context. It is also the story of first century Israel. Jesus calling for an end to rage and the possibility of forgiveness cannot be abstracted from the peculiarities of the Roman occupation of Judea. Jesus came into a world in which his fellow Jews had every reason to be angry at Rome. They were an occupied country, they were overtaxed, they were exploited, and they were subject to all the indignities of colonial trade and colonial rule. Those in Israel who still hope for a Messiah often look for one that would defeat their enemies. Zechariah's psalm, which opens the Gospel of Luke, did not portend a passion of the Messiah, but rather his victory. John the Baptist was so confounded by the ministry of Jesus that he wondered if Jesus was the one or if he should look for another. But nonetheless, these early Jewish Christians, who had all the historical ammunition needed, to seek the ruin of their Gentile oppressors, made it their mission to convert a largely hostile Roman world. This call to transform rage into love and forgiveness can be misheard. It can be heard as a means of just justifying continued abuse and acquiescing to mistreatment. There are two reasons that willingly accepting abuse is inappropriate for Christians. Let me say that again. There are two reasons that willingly accepting abuse is inappropriate for Christians. First, the theological energy of the Bible is toward liberation. The Exodus speaks of freedom from slavery, and the New Testament speaks in numerous places about freedom from sin. God does not intend for his people to remain in bondage forever, or to be harmed, or to be abused forever. Therefore, it is appropriate for those suffering unjustly to forgive their enemies from a distance if necessary. We do not have to stay. We do not have to be in fellowship with them. Second, the New Testament also calls on believers to help those who are suffering. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God 
the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. How could we offer those being abused anything less than the end of their suffering when we have the power to grant it? James does not say, tell the orphans and the widows to put up with suffering. He says to the Christian, help them. Therefore, finding a place of forgiveness does not mean that we must allow suffering to continue indefinitely when we have the resources to do something about it. All right. So he is he's kind of setting some good uh, premises here about rage and the fact that rage is not something, well, rage can be addressed by choosing to forgive but at the same time, forgiveness is not something that's supposed to be used as a crutch. It's not supposed you're not supposed to bypass the need for justice to be served in order to say you forgive someone. Which, by the way, is oftentimes what is expected of black Christians, especially in the context of injustices happening here in the United States. When you look at things like police brutality, um, when you look at things like racism, which police brutality can sometimes be an outworking of that, people automatically rush to put a microphone in somebody's face and say, All right, what are you going to do? Are you going to forgive? It's like, why are we jumping past justice being served and demanding that people forgive without justice being served? Um, that's a problem and it continues to be a problem. Um, but I, I like the fact that he is kind of laying it out very plainly in his work that no, we don't have to brush past the need for justice to be served. We can demand and call for justice. We can make our voices heard. We can lift up our complaint when we see something wrong happening, um, without, going straight to, oh, no matter what that person does, I forgive them. Because, again, the other side of that is, if people are unrepentant, then what are you forgiving? If they're not, they're not sorry about what they did. They're not even asking you to forgive them. So then what are you forgiving them for? All very good questions, ideas and thoughts. If you would like to come on and share, we've got about a good 10-12 minutes here um, before I sign off for today. And we can chop it up for a little bit. If you are listening by Google Play or Spotify, I want to thank you for your time and attention. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues and I've been your host today, Shante Charles. Remember, Light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. Take care, be well, and most importantly, be light.